From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The adjunct professor who probably has a PhD in English from Yale or, you know, it's ilk, and the lawyer who is both highly educated and highly paid, the thing that ties them together is this shared cultural capital. And that these days, in terms of social pecking order, really trumps everything. Hello, welcome to Mr. Punch on the Fox Media Podcast Network. Uh, this is a fascinating episode. Elizabeth Curd Halkett is the James Irvine Chair in Urban and Regional Planning, and she's a professor of public policy at the Price School, the University of Southern California. And she wrote this book a while back called The Sum of Small Things. And it's a it's a deep look at how the wealthy used to spend their money and how they spend it now. And in particular, it's a deep look at the ways in which wealth was signaled in prior eras and what that signaling meant, what it said and reflected about society and how wealth is signaled now and how it's changed. Uh, and it has changed a lot. Um, it has changed a lot in ways that are really telling about what we value and who we are and who we prize and what we expect of ourselves. This is uh, an episode that connects very much to the Daniel Markovitz episode on meritocracy, to the Michael Lind episode on class war. It's an episode very much about the kinds of competitions in which we've found ourselves or constructed for ourselves and what the ways in which the affluent class, um, what others call maybe the managerial class, the elite, so on, the ways in which they signal who they are, the ways in which they create knowledge that allows them to advance more easily than others, um, the ways in which even a show like this is part of that, right? Uh, I, I never want to just like push this out. There's no doubt that particularly in the kind of knowledge signaling that she's talking about, that that we're all part of this too. And so recognizing the water we swim in, recognizing the structures we are part of and perpetuating, um, recognizing that they may have good parts, but also some bad parts, I think is really important. And Craig Halkett's work is great because it isn't just a, a lens on society, it's a lens on ourselves, uh, which I love. That's my favorite kind of conversation. So as always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, uh, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Elizabeth Curd Halkett. Elizabeth Curd Halkett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Ezra. So, so why don't we start with class? How do you define or think about class or class identity? Class has been historically defined, you know, if we go way back to, you know, truly social position. So, you know, you could think about 
aristocrats who may not have a lot of money, but they have a lot of land and they have a lot of social credibility. You can think about more modern conceptions of class, which I think really come with the Industrial Revolution and the manufacturing economy of the 20th century, which is when we define class through our socioeconomics. So are you rich? Are you poor? Are you working class? Are you middle class? Are you something in between? And and then alongside this, I don't think that this has really disappeared, but has, I, and I think is part of what I've been studying, is you also have class in the form of the knowledge and culture and education that you've acquired. Where do we put the cognoscenti, for example? You know, if they if they weren't wealthy um, or bohemians, right? And we know that, you know, David Brooks has written about bobos, which are the bohemian bourgeois. So you have, you know, on one very kind of very simplistic level, you have class defined by economics. But there's also the way in which we define class by our social assets, I just had this conversation the other day with Michael Lind, which I think will come out before before this one. But he he has this idea of a new class war, and similarly to you, is trying to come up with a conception and a definition of class that understands class more as a set of cultural affiliations and and an identity than just as a as a pure reflection of socioeconomics. But something that I asked him, and that that I want to ask you because I think it'll help um, draw some boundaries on our conversation, is. There's a version of class where if you take somebody who a lawyer who makes $120,000, you know, they have a JD, they went to Yale, and somebody who is a high school dropout but started up a successful exterminator business in Houston, and they also make $120,000. And there's one version where those two people are the same class, despite in many ways acting very differently. And then there's another version where actually the lawyer and the adjunct English professor who's only making $45,000 are actually the same class. And the exterminator is someone they would not in the same way find uh, to have the same class and cultural affiliations. Is that sort of the the delineation you're cutting here? Yes, that's a beautiful example. Uh, I think one of the things that has happened is that cultural capital has become the currency for social mobility. And so the adjunct professor who probably has a PhD in English from Yale or, you know, it's ilk. And the lawyer who is both highly educated and highly paid, the thing that ties them together is this shared cultural capital. And that these days, in terms of social pecking order, really trumps everything. Wait, I love this line. Cultural capital has become the currency for social mobility. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So, you know, let's first just define what I mean by cultural capital. So cultural capital are all of your social assets, and they're they're used for social mobility, whether consciously or not. So it's um, you know a very basic way: your education level, and then it's your knowledge. It's how you speak, how you dress, what you read, how you converse with people, and these days it's you know what you eat and how you exercise, and you know myriad different kinds of things we do day to day. You know historically, if we think about social mobility, which I think has become increasingly more difficult. It was simply about money, right? And in fact, we can even go back to the mid-20th century and say, you know, so many people were able to realize social mobility with, you know, a house in the suburbs and a car and a refrigerator and air conditioning. And this was the American dream. It's so much more difficult now. It's not just these material 
things, which many more people can get, but don't actually reproduce social mobility. So today, when we think about you know, what is social mobility? How do people get ahead? And probably very important to a a lot of people, how do they help their children get ahead in what is an increasingly tough globalized world? It's cultural capital. And that becomes the thing that everyone's striving for, even if they don't put that name on it. As I reflect on that, on that line and that explanation, one thing that emerges for me is there are a lot of people who are suffused in the cultural capital you're talking about and nevertheless feel that they have no social mobility, that there's a very powerful political force emerging from people who felt like they went to the right schools, they did all the right things, they did the extracurriculars, you know, they they watched all the right shows and read all the right books. And now they're deep in student loan debt. They do not see an opportunity to do better than their parents did. Um, They feel they're part of the precarious class or they're part of the millennial burnout movement. But that it doesn't seem that for a lot of the people who are in command of this social capital, it feels to them like it's delivering mobility. So I think that's absolutely correct. My not pushback, but my critique of that is that if they feel bad, can you imagine what the people without the college degree feel like? I think that for a lot of people in this world, life is really hard and social mobility is too. I think it's even true amongst the upper middle class and shuttling their kids to 50 million different extracurriculars. They still don't necessarily think their kids going to Stanford. Um, And they're really hoping that they crack the top 50, you know, universities. I think the point is, is that because of a, a number of different things that social mobility has become more and more treacherous. And so what I often think when I think about, you know, the Columbia journalism student, right? So they have this extraordinary degree and they're clearly very intelligent and they've got they've got real skills and you know they're in this, right? You know, they're barely able to pay their rent for their walk up in Brooklyn, but they have still have more. And that degree does give them more options. So it's not to I don't think anyone has a free lunch today. There's an interesting way in which once you begin to imagine classes operating outside the realm of economics, you get into a funny thing where you can be arguing for dignity and mobility and a a kind of social respect, or you can be arguing for economics. And one of the things that I think has happened uh, in American culture is that those two things for many people diverged, that they've done all the things to amass cultural capital that gives them a kind of cultural respect, right? They they move through the, the lanes and the groups and the societies that you're talking about here. They have a fluency in what you might argue is a dominant culture but that that's not coming with any kind of economic security. It's not coming with a good job. It's not coming with stable, steady health care. It's not coming with a path forward. And so in the same way that I hear an increasing number of thinkers trying to pull apart the threads of identity and culture and economics in how we think about class, it seems to me that for a lot of people, they're just coming apart. And that part of the reaction is a sense that, well, if I did all the things to, to attain this capital and everybody's treating me as if I have this capital, then shouldn't it have had a throughput to my economic situation. I mean, I think that's a very reasonable point. I think there's two things going on here. I think one is I'm I'm often reminded of that old adage I, our parents said, you know, I don't think I would have gotten into that school if I was applying now, you know, or I don't think I would have gotten that job if I was applying now. Uh, because I think these these jobs and 
you know, colleges and internships are more and more competitive. So I think it actually is empirically a harder world to navigate. And it is completely understandable that people who have tried to navigate that world and are finding it really difficult feel resentment. So that's one part of it. And it's entirely possible that the pendulum will swing, right? That we'll we'll actually see different things mattering because this is sort of the cycle of culture and economics. But the other thing that I think is more problematic is that because cultural capital does have such currency and such leverage for social mobility, we see certain groups able to commodify it and pay for it. What I mean by this is that your average middle to upper middle class family 20 years ago would have prioritized a lot of the things that we prioritize today, right? So they would think that music lessons mattered and that their child should go to a strong school, public or private, that they should do sports, that they should read. And their child would very likely end up in a pretty good position, at least, you know, go to a good university. But today, there are all these other ways you can do this. And even if you as a a parent, for example, didn't necessarily have that stuff before, you know these are the tickets. So if you have the money, you now write the check for the expensive music lessons and you, you know, pay for your kid to have SAT prep. And if they're struggling in calculus, you get them a good tutor and you're able to pay through the nose for a $50,000 a year high school. And that child then does go to a school where they are, you know, taught the great works of literature and the math and the science, and they then do become that perfect applicant. And so there is a way in which particular groups can buy it. It's not to say they aren't deserving of it, but that it has become more complicated now that there's a price tag on cultural capital, that then if you just have the cultural capital, but not the money or the parents with the money, yeah, you might be stuck. Yeah, you can buy it. And then and this is a part of your argument we'll get to later, but you can buy it. And now it comes with either the justification or the myth of deservingness, which at least in the past it didn't have. If you were just born into it, well, you know, you're the kid of the of the prince. But if you buy it and you've gone to the class, well, then who can tell you it's not truly yours and earned? Because weren't you there doing those violin lessons and 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 going to like club soccer? I think it's a good time to to start going through some of the bigger pieces of your argument. So can you start with a Veblen good? Just what what is a Veblen good? A Veblen good is a good where its demand is a function of its price, which is to say that as the price of the good goes up, the demand for the good increases too. And in many ways, this defies conventional economics where we think, well, if something's cheaper, more people want it. But it's the opposite with a Veblen good. So so walk me through that. So the idea here is that the measure of the good is not its utility to you. In some ways, it might even be more valuable for not being that useful, but just for being high priced. Like what are what are examples of something that isn't is not maybe a Veblen good? So Veblen himself in his book, The Theory of the Leisure Class, which really inspired a lot of my own work, he talks about silver spoons. And he says, you know, a silver spoon is not valuable because it's, you know, more functional than an aluminum one. In fact, you might even argue that it doesn't look that different than all of these other metals that you could use, but it is valuable because it is silver and it is rare and it costs more. And just just that, it's not it doesn't have a greater utility than any old 
spoon that someone else might use. So that's an example of a Veblen good. In modern society, you know, we think about designer handbags. I mean, you can say that some of them are better made, but truthfully, you know, they still are carrying a wallet, some keys, maybe some chapstick, just like a bag you could spend $10 on, right? But a, a designer handbag, you couldn't spend three, $4,000 on. So these are Veblen goods. You know, food is not really a Veblen good. I mean, you can, you know, mince that argument that all food kind of provides the uh, nutrients and um, nourishment, but we do need food. So food isn't conventionally thought of as a Veblen good. But so something like a fancy suit would be a Veblen good in this respect. It's maybe even because it is so nice, you really can't get anything on it. Um, it wrinkles more easily. It's maybe a little bit more constricted. But by nature of displaying a status, is it fair to say that Veblen goods are goods that their fundamental value is in that they project your status out into the world by virtue of their assumed price or scarcity? Absolutely. I mean, this was Veblen's big contribution was he said that these upper classes, this leisure class, basically spend all their time revealing their social position through material goods that didn't have greater utility or conspicuous leisure, which was revealing that they had so much time that they could study classics or, you know, exercise. One of the examples that reminds me of your suit example is the corset, that if a woman could wear a corset, it meant that she clearly didn't have to do any work because they were really constricting and uncomfortable. So it revealed that you really didn't have to do anything useful with your time. So I actually think that's an important piece of this, too, this idea that for a very long time, one of the things that the rich, the the upper class wanted to project was leisure, that they were not working hard, that, I mean, that goes from everything from foot binding in China to corsets to all kinds of ways people spent their time playing golf, which takes forever, um, that there was a whole way of projecting that I am wealthy enough that I don't have to toil like you, the common, dirty peasant laborers. Yeah, that's true. And I and I think one of the things that's really changed, so that particular you know, elite, let's call them generally, uh, they were given it through birthright, right? So this this was a group of people who essentially passed this, you know, wealth and social position on through their gener- through generations. And there there was no real clear way at the time for others to catch up, you know, the peasants, for example. Capitalism and particularly the Industrial Revolution and the Manufacturing Revolution created a middle class and it created a merchant class and and a group of people who could actually make money and define their social position through economic means. And that did, in fact, involve work. <laughs> so, uh, so it changed in terms of what we valued and, in fact, how people got their social position. And so in that respect, how social position is and was revealed changed too. So that's where we were. So so talk as you you began to hear about how that's changed. How do how do the upper class? I keep on to say wealthy, but that's actually not the definition here. How do people who are higher class now display it? How has their consumption changed? So I think one of the things that has really changed, and I I actually think it's quite a new phenomenon is that conspicuous consumption, so material goods, you know, your your classic Veblen goods, are no longer as revealing of social position as they once were. And it begs the question, why? So, you know, we discuss, you know, the fact that, you know, you have this group of elites that are primarily awarded this position through birthright. 
capitalist society and uh, the rise of you know manufacturing and entrepreneurship, they allowed for a different class of elites to emerge. And uh, and initially through economic means. And this is how the middle class comes along in the mid-20th century. But then what happens is that this, in many ways, collapses. You have the manufacturing economy going to different countries. So major Western capitalist societies lose manufacturing as a big source of income for a middle class. And we see a market saturation with a lot of standardized products, right? So how many dishwashers does a family really need, for example? And so what then happens is you have the rise of change in what's driving the global economy and who is driving it. And what we see is that where factories shut down in cities, you have the rise of a professionalized class. Lawyers, people who work in finance, accountants, the medical industry exploding, and then the accoutrements of this, along with creative industries, writers, designers, uh, musicians that become the center of cities. And those people drive an enormous amount of the economic power of the global economy. What happens then with this rise of the manufacturing economy in the 20th century is that a lot of consumer goods become really cheap. So things like silver spoons and nice clothing and cars and even, frankly, homes with amenities, they now become accessible to a huge group of people. You know, a whole swath of the American population is now able to afford these things. And this doesn't just happen in America, but it's the geography I'm most familiar with. And it's a lot of technologies allow this, right? So, for example, if we think about homes, the balloon frame house, that allowed for this standardization of producing houses and suburbia. Uh, The same thing with roads. You know, it starts with Henry Ford and his Model T, the same thing with cars. And then the manufacturing economy then allows us to produce lots and lots of stuff for increasingly cheaper prices. So all of this is happening. And then you have two things occurring, I think, not exactly in lockstep, but they are related, which is the rise of these professionals in cities and the fact that they get there through the acquisition of knowledge and education. These are you know, what some people call knowledge workers. They are labor market elites by any definition. And you also have the way in which they reveal their social position changing too, because now if everyone can own a car and a nice house and nice clothing, and you have this enormous knockoff market and the rise of fast fashion. So everyone can kind of look like they're buying clothing on Fifth Avenue and they can own handbags that look kind of like they really are a Louis Vuitton or a Chanel to someone who's not an expert. Then those material goods become less valuable. And so they don't become as important a measure of social position. The other thing that's going on here is that not only are those not as valuable, and so they don't become they're not as as great a marker of status, we also lose interest in things in in general that are ubiquitous. They're not rarefied anymore. They're not Veblen goods because they're not just 
not ex- as expensive, but they're they're everywhere. So I think that that is a huge part of it. But then the other thing actually gets to the core of these people themselves, these professional workers, which is that they are working really, really hard. Uh, they are not aristocrats. They are not idle. And so the things that they then look at to consume to show social position are in some ways quite practical. They are buying back time. And they, and this is where you have the rise of a service economy that becomes very, very important to these people. And they are also looking for means that aren't necessarily material in the traditional sense, because material in the traditional sense is everywhere. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. One thing that, that you talk about is the rise of conspicuous production, which is to say the purchase of goods, that the good itself is not obviously better than other um, versions of the same thing. But what it has is a value-laden story attached to it. Um, the way it was produced, you know who the farmers were behind the tomato or you know where the chicken was farmed or to get out of food. You know where the watch was made and it was fair trade and so on. You make an argument about this that what you are doing when you buy things like that is on some level signaling that you are the kind of person in the knowledge economy who absorbs a lot of information in order to make like highly educated production decisions. And that that's a, a kind of signaling that is of great relevance to how people get ahead in the economy. Could you talk a bit about that? Because that was a version of what this kind of consumption is that I'd never heard before. So one thing that I realized when I was writing this book was that the value of a lot of the goods that were being consumed by this new group of people was not the thing itself, but 
how the thing was made, where it came from, and the story it could tell. And I think one of the big ways in which this has occurred is that we now know the price of a lot of those mass-produced goods. So we know that you know sweatshops are terrible. There's in massive environmental consequences to having too much of stuff, having plastics. You know, we don't need 50 million t-shirts. We need one that lasts us a long time. So that kind of mass production really got a bad name. And given that so many people in this group, this aspirational class, prize knowledge, the choice in what they buy has a lot to do with their knowledge. So they want to be informed consumers. And so learning that something has been you know, produced in China uh, in some assembly line um, in some sweatshop is very unappealing. And so this kind of made in LA or made in the USA or you know, made in Brooklyn <laughs> becomes really valuable because there is this sense that we know what we're getting and we it's not just authentic, but that we feel informed and that we're doing the right thing with our consumer choices. And I think this is a huge part of how this group of people consumes goods, that this really matters. You know, one of my favorite examples of conspicuous production is Whole Foods. And the reason is, is because I think everyone who goes into Whole Foods, it's this all-encompassing shopping experience. So it's, you know, tends to be a little less frenzied than most shopping markets. And uh, it's, it's, you know, got all sorts of amenities there. There's, you know, music and there's there's coffee and there's, you know, places where you can actually just sit down and eat. Um, but the other thing is, is that there is this whole way in which the food you buy is framed such that you genuinely feel like a, a bit of a better person when you buy food there. And if you can ignore the price tag, uh, which is hard to do in fairness, uh, it is a place where people know that they're buying things or at least are told that they're buying things that, you know, the farmers were treated well, the animals were treated well, you know, the eggs you buy are from chickens that roam free. Uh, and so there's this whole experience where you are willing to pay the extra because the story is one you want to be a part of. So what's interesting to me about the, the explanation you gave there is it feels to me like in the book you're saying something a little sharper, um, and I mean sharper in the more cutting, which is that it may feel that way to us. It may feel that we are trying to make these more ethical and culturally informed decisions about what to buy. But actually what we're trying to do when we shop at Whole Foods or listen to the Ezra Klein show or whatever it might be is signify our membership in a class. And I'm curious how you how you or whether you even cut apart those two things, because what is the difference between doing something because it makes you feel like you're being a good person and you want to be a good person versus doing something because that is how you show the kind of person you are to make sure you have this cultural capital that can keep you moving forward in this in this version of American society? So this is a great question, and it's it's one that I wrestle with both intellectually and within myself, because I think what you're really getting at is how conscious are we of our motivations? And I have a funny story uh, about this, because I, th I think one of the vortexes of this new kind of consumption is parenting. Uh, and perhaps, Ezra, you'll relate to this. You're constantly, I think, as a member of society, paradoxically trying to show your distinction and to assimilate, right? So you want to, you know, 
it's completely, you know, normal human nature that you want to you want to kind of reveal reveal your social position is all right. <laughs> and you, on the other hand, you know, and so you find these ways in which you distinguish yourself, uh, but also you want to be a member of, of a group, right? It's So it's this kind of paradox. So the extent to which we do things because we are motivated intrinsically versus we are motivated to be a part of something is hard to untangle. And the example of this that I think of as a, as a mother, I have three young children, is you know, I just gave birth five months ago to my third son. And, uh, you know, I went into labor and I went to the hospital and uh, I've been very lucky. I My my labors and deliveries have been, you know, textbook. Uh, and in my first two labors, I had an epidural and it really helped and no complications. So I, I get in there for my third baby and um, my mom's in town and she in full disclosure, as an anesthesiologist, and this is an important part of the story, uh, I'm there and I'm going into labor and I'm thinking to myself, you know, maybe I'm not going to get an epidural this time. Maybe I'm not going to do this. And I get a phone call from my my eldest son who is calling me and he wants to get out of going to piano because I'm having a baby. And I said, no, you have to go to piano. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, if I can have this conversation, I don't need an epidural. And you know you're progressing, progressing, and I'm it's I'm really quite uncomfortable. And my mother's looking at me as a woman who you know gives people epidurals all the time as a part of her job, and you know, she's not a judgmental person, but you can see her eyebrows arching and and she's slightly bewildered. And at some point, I cave and I'm like, "All right, okay, okay, epidural." And you know, I can't think about it in the moment what was motivating me, but of course, afterwards, I really thought about it. I thought, why was I being so difficult with myself? And I realized it was because there's this whole new cultural movement around motherhood, which is the natural birth, best is the home birth, uh, and it's wrapped up in all of this kind of you know these cultural norms now around parenting, whether it's breastfeeding your kid for two years or, you know, making sure that they, you know, eat salmon, you know, three times a week, and and so these things get really untangled. So on the one hand, am I doing something, you know, for my child, or am I doing something for myself, or is it something that I want to be able to say, oh yeah, I had a natural birth, no medicine, it was great. I don't really know the answer. Um, it's not ill. I don't have any ill will. It's not. It, there's no sort of negative angle. But I do think it's quite complicated to know why we make these decisions that we feel are informed, but not necessarily steeped entirely in rationality. It's funny. I find that whole story, as the kids say, now triggering. So we uh, had moved to the Bay Area shortly before we had our our child. And we went to Bay Area childbirth classes and the whole thing. And the aggression of the natural is best movement, which seemed when I was in the classes to to make a, a certain amount of sense. We then had an incredibly complicated medicalized pregnancy. There was absolutely no choice in the things we did, and, and they were very dangerous at some points in, in what was happening. And it was so much harder. It was so much emotionally harder because we had imbibed all of this Propaganda, um, argument, whatever it is, right? I, I don't want to. I don't want to cast too much aspersion on it, but we had been kind of acculturated into an idea of how to look at this, where medicalization was a kind of failure, and if you fell into it, you know, you should really do everything you can to stop it. And doctors are going to try to over medicalize you, and like they just, you know, want to get you in and out. And you know, there's all these arguments that get made. You know, that the body's amazing and it knows how to do this if you just give it time and turn on the lights and get in a bath and 
And so then when we really were in danger, um, it didn't just come with the fear of the danger, but the uh, like slow destruction of things we had kind of learned how to believe. And in retrospect, I really regret a lot of um, a lot of what we absorbed. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's 100 percent on 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 our point here, but but it is to it is to your point of the motivations for why we end up adopting some of these ideas are a little bit hard sometimes to trace back. And I guess the question it leaves me with is, are we really dealing with anything different here? Which is to say, maybe our motivations for our consumption and our approach to life are always heavily social. They're always about what other people will think of us. And so the question is simply, can you tie that what other people will think of us to better or worse metrics? You talk in the book and and here a little bit about the idea of being ethical as a kind of status good. And when I was reading that, I wondered how new any of that really was. I mean, or is that just the modern version of being pious, right? We have, you know, for most of human history, much of it been in religious organizations and orders and communities. And people on some level try to show that they're more pious than the person, you know, over to their right. And maybe conspicuous production and some of the other things people are doing to show that they are using their time well and trying to be a good person in the world, it's simply that same thing in a more capitalistic context of yoking the way you are seen in the community to hopefully the virtue of what you're doing. Well, I I think that's a really interesting observation. And and by the way, I think your story really does link to this because I think this kind of consumption that we're talking about now is steeped in some ostensibly being an informed consumer, but also some sort of morality. And the flip side of that is that if people aren't engaging in this kind of consumption, do they not care? Are they making terrible decisions? Now, I think if we look at the you know, whole arc of human civilization, we can see this ebb and flow. But if we look, say, at the last large leitmotif of how we consumed, I would say this is quite different. So I think if we think in the 80s and 90s about how people revealed social position, it really was about money. (laughs) I mean, you bought a Rolex and you bought a car and you bought a house in the right neighborhood. And it really was, social position was really clearly through material goods. And of course, there are exceptions to this. But if we're talking about like a dominant hegemony, this was, these were the ways in which people showed social position. And this is actually why you see a rise of fast fashion and knockoffs and cheap credit. Because of of course, you know, and I'm certainly not the first to say this, you know, if the elites are doing it, it trickles down, you know. So that, that desire to emulate, uh, that's also something that's been going on for you know, many, many, many years. Uh, but that so that that's that relationship at play. And now you see this reaction almost against that type of uh, revealing of social position where it becomes, you know, what I call inconspicuous consumption and conspicuous production, which is that there's a lot of acquisition of things people can't see, even if they're really, really expensive. And if even if they're about actually buying time back and there is this acquisition of goods that feel, to your point, you know, you're almost not, not sanctimonious, but, you know, I know what I'm doing here. I'm buying farmer's markets tomatoes. I'm not buying industrialized ones. I'm buying humane beef rather than the, you know, the the beef where we don't think the cow is treated very well. And the same thing for my T-shirts and my coffee. So I think there is this reaction actually against previous 
means of showing status. Uh, and I ac- I think at least in the present moment, that's quite different than what we saw, you know, in the previous two decades. One of my underlying models of human beings, to just be very blunt about it, is that we're status monsters, that we are just exquisitely attuned to our status within the group, the tribe, the now like the, the workplace, the profession, whatever it might be. I know so many people who I'll talk to them and they'll take some really big job that has genuinely huge social consequences, right? They're working in government or in NGOs or they're high up in a, in a company. And when I talk to them about their job, they're just endlessly obsessed, as I have often been myself, with just like what's going on within the workplace, right? You know, this person is screwing with me. And like from the outside, you wouldn't think that's what they'd be thinking about, but they are. And so like maybe the trick of human life is yoking these very powerful elemental desires for status to just better rather than worse motivators, which is to say that I I very much take your point that it seems to have changed from the 80s and 90s, right? There's a way in which Donald Trump in his pre-political configuration was the apex of that kind of 80s, 90s wealth, right? It's flashy, it's gold, it's, you know, suits and tuxes and hair plugs and supermodels and the whole thing. And now you have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg in his hoodies you know, only eating meat, he's killed himself with a laser beam or whatever it is, which he actually said at some point, or I guess Jack Dorsey said he he was served meat that Mark Zuckerberg killed with a laser beam. And, you know, having these yearly efforts to learn Chinese or build his own AI or whatever it might be. And, and obviously people have different feelings about Mark Zuckerberg in terms of Facebook, but but maybe that's a better way for wealth to work, for people to feel like they have to sign the giving pledge and for the 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 waterfalling incentives to be you know, try to be try to be a better person to the extent we know how. People call it sanctimonious, but I don't know. In some ways, I and obviously I'm talking my own book here as a like a like a strident vegan and so on. But uh, people call it sanctimonious, but it seems better to me than um, endless materialistic competition. So I I think this is a great point, and and you you really articulated it well. There's no question that some of it is about revealing social position. And part of it is this reaction to a previous kind of consumption. But one of the things, one of the through lines of this new type of consumer behavior, and I think it really it links to your story of your own birth of your child, is that there is this morality and then this feeling bad if you can't pull it off. And so, you know, your story of the complications of your uh, your wife's labor I've heard that so many times. I mean, not your exact one, but, you know, friends who've had to have an emergency C-section and they feel bad about it. And I'm thinking to myself, how could you feel bad about something that had an had a medical imperative? I mean, this had to happen to save your baby. But this is the thing about this kind of more complicated consumption, which isn't simply material, which is that but somehow we failed in pulling this off. If, if you know, something happens that we can't anticipate. I think one of the ones that I've been very both passionate and intrigued by is breastfeeding, right? So now the, the kind of the image of the mother breastfeeding, that is the perfect way in which you're supposed to feed your baby. And yet there's plenty of women for lots of different reasons can't do it. And maybe their reason is, I don't want to. And by the way, that's fine. <laughs> But it is it is judged if you don't. I mean, this notion that you would give formula to your child, certainly in major progressive metro areas, is is really shunned upon. And 
you have to step back for a moment and say, why? And and by the way, I breastfed my children and I, I you know, I breastfeed my five-month-old, but but I can intellectually take a step back and say, why do we care? We th- This is not poison. It's formula. It's been given to children for decades. This woman is a working mom. This woman's having trouble with it. She doesn't enjoy it. She has three other children, whatever. It doesn't matter. But somehow these, the fact that we can't engage in the practices. It's not simply, well, I don't own a role. I don't own a Rolex because I'm not rich enough. It's I didn't breastfeed my kid or have a natural birth. And what's my excuse? <laughs> so I think that's where the problem is. Yeah, that I I think all is correct. One thing I just want to say for people listening to this, because you talked about this in your book, and I have a past episode with Emily Oster uh, of this show if people want to go back and look at it. But in case the thing that you thought when you heard that was, well, you have to breastfeed because it raises IQ points or sets them up for success. When you do the controls on the studies, at the very least, that is not something we can say with any confidence. And it seems to probably not be true. Um, it seems to have some good effects on immunity, but the the to, for all the reasons I think that, that you're putting out here, it's been way culturally oversold, which gets to something else that you talk about, which is this constant pressure to show you're using leisure productively, to show you're doing everything productively, that you are making your consumption decisions productively, that you're deciding how to raise your child, whether to breastfeed them, how to bear them, et cetera, in a way that is going to maximize their ability to be productive in the future. And that, you know, when you're taking your time off, you you wouldn't be playing video games. You're going to listen to the Ezra Klein show or you're going to, you know, learn a new language on Duolingo or whatever it might be, that there's this constant pressure, um, particularly among the upper class, to show that they use their leisure productively. They go to Aspen, they pay thousands of dollars to go to the Aspen Ideas Festival or to attend TED Talks or whatever it might be. And that that's another part of this building an approach to leisure that at least part of it, I mean, maybe part of it is that it's good to be productive, but another part of it is that it justifies your position in the hierarchy to you and in a way to everybody else. So I think that I think that's a big part of it. I think that because so many people in this new elite got there through hard work and what we can in a general sense call meritocracy although i you know i have issues with that as well uh but, but if we can say that that then the revealing of that social position becomes important in everything we do and so it's you know much as it might be sort of secretly enjoyable to on a saturday afternoon sit on your sofa with your feet up and read a celebrity tabloid that's just completely not acceptable. I mean, if you do it, you do it in private and you don't tell people unless you're trying to be funny. Um, because it's it's actually true that we embed all of our way of living around productivity and self-improvement. And in fact, that's what the consumption data really shows is that we we are spending so much more money. Um, well, and, and let me caveat that. The top income groups are spending so much more money on things that make their lives better rather than things. So, you know, in a broad sense, you see investments in education and health and retirement in, you know, much greater investments than you saw 20 years ago. And and this to- these top income groups doing it so much more. But then in these, you know, if we unpack it, what are these smaller things? It's, it's you know, music instruments, it's experiences. Uh, it's, you know, to your point, listening to intellectual podcasts. It's reading the New York Review of Books. And it is constantly engaging in knowledge because that's that. And it's not just the knowledge, but it's the cultural capital that shows your social position. And by the way, I I think something that's really important here 
is that it is not free to do that. And that's why actually when you think about all of these kinds of activities, you know, whether we're talking about breastfeeding or how you give birth or which, you know, podcast you listen to, that it is expensive to know to do those things and expensive to have that as an option. And that I feel is very obscured. And I think to get to your point earlier about, you know, do people who engage in this feel superior? You know, yes and no. But I think the problem is, is what they do feel is that they're not contributing to to the kind of larger social problems because they're doing the right thing all the time. And and in fact, in a way, all of this is widening the inequality gap. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You have a really interesting section in the book where you talk about the work of Columbia University sociologist Seamus Kahn. Kahn did work on, it seemed to me, sort of elite prep schools. And he talks about how the arguments about hard work end up being, he, quoting him here, a rhetorical cover to, to mask what is actually driving people forward. And, and the quote which you have here is that it's the students from advantaged backgrounds who are most likely to succeed because throughout their lives, before even crossing the threshold of these spaces, they've developed the dispositions and cultural capital that give them an advantage over others. And, and this line feels so important to me. They feel at home within the institutions that reward them for exactly the type of behavior that is native to them. And that seems to me like a very, very important difference in inequality driver, that it's one thing to say you need to learn the material in this textbook, but to say that you need to feel natural acting in the ways that a certain class of people act when the people you're competing against, that's the only way they've ever known how to act and you're trying to, you're trying to shrug it on, that's a huge impediment to social mobility in the long run. It absolutely is. I mean, one of the things I think is a real crisis for at least American society is that, you know, we have these means of upward mobility, um, particularly in our elite universities. And elite universities, you know, really do want 
poor, bright kids. But the problem is that it's not just about income level. So I, I, I'm probably going to get this a bit off, but I know that Harvard has some general rule, which is if you make, I don't know, if your family makes, is it $250,000 or less, you you can go to Harvard for free. I, I may have the stat slightly off, but it's something like that. Like if you're, and, and by the way, $250,000 is quite a lot of money. But when you actually look at who gets to attend Harvard and places like Harvard, the Ivy and the top 25 universities, these people are generally really, really well-to-do. So even though universities want to do this, they still end up with a bunch of highly privileged students. And it's because it starts so early. And I think this is why if you buy a watch or a car, it's static. It's just a thing. Whereas if we think about cultural capital as social mobility, it's dynamic and it takes a long time to build. So you know, you can be a poor, smart kid, but if you were never given the chance to learn a musical instrument or a second or third language or go to museums which allow you to write fantastic application essays or a public school where you read all the great books and you can, you know, really engage in application questions or the, the college interview, if you don't get those chances, which start at like five years old, you don't really have a shot. And that is a problem because we we have really privatized so much cultural capital. It has it it has a price tag on it. So it's kind of impossible if you're not well-to-do from the get-go. You have an interesting section in the book where you talk about how this kind of consumption breaks down by race. And, and something you argue and show in the data is that uh, racial minorities tend to spend more on material items, conspicuous consumption, as we would call it, because they need to display wealth more openly to be treated with respect. But then there's this boomerang effect as the as like the the, the upper class becomes more anti-materialistic in the way they show their wealth, that can then get judged. It's like you're 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 trying to succeed on like a 90 or early 2000s framework and here everybody's, you know, dressing in sweatshirts and hoodies and going to yoga. And that the the way that these messages get received at other points in the income distribution, and particularly for people with um, a, a more stacked set of disadvantages, can be very different and very damaging and just like bury them under uh, the high cost of having been poor. Yeah, so that's right. So my doctoral student, Yo Jung Lee, uh, who's now a professor at Virginia Tech, and I looked at this and and, and we ran the analysis and and came to the same findings that previous scholars have, which is that minority groups, uh, if you control for other variables, tend to spend more on conspicuous consumption. And the interpretation of this, and this is not ours, uh, this is you know, previous scholars, is that if you are at such a disadvantage to begin with to assimilate, that you, if you, if you can make it, that you you show through whatever material means you can, that you've you've arrived, right? But to your point, it is complicated because in in some ways, I mean, the joke I make in the book is that some poor aristocrat still has more social position than, you know, Tony Soprano ever would with his palatial suburban mansion, uh, that it it actually, it is such a intergenerational game now that even if you arrive in some way in the present tense, you're almost preparing the next generation and you need to know learn the rules for the next generation. Um in the current status wars. I mean, you know, historically, again, in the 80s, you could have bought the big car and the fancy watch and you would almost immediately fit into some social social groups. But now it's it's not that easy. In fact, you know, there's an irony that, you know, 
you know, your your old Volvo or your, you know, beat up Subaru is some sort of mark of status in a way that, you know, a Porsche or a BMW is not. Oh, my God. I, I, I Going around Berkeley, the number of Subarus knowing what the housing prices cost, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just such an amazing wrinkle of the whole situation. Well, I think it's quite intentional. You know, I mean, that is the irony of it, right? Is that there's this kind of way in which they almost and I, I think you could actually even look at, you know, early wasp culture, too, which is that you can get away with it if you've already assimilated. You can. You, why do you need the fancy car? You already you already know your social position or and other people know it, too. You know, so you find other means to translate. So one of the things in the idea of inconspicuous consumption, where you're off, you're often talking there about investing in education, in house cleaners, in it seems like a, a lot of sort of human capital investments or service sector work so you can make your own human capital investments. And one way of thinking about that is as a form of consumption, but another is as a form of competition, which I recognize is part of there's a status dimension where you're you're signaling or not signaling. And I know that's what you're getting at here. But there's also a way in which people are making these investments, moving to these places because they're terrified that one of the things about this system is that nobody feels truly secure within it. Everybody feels that they could lose their position at any time. Everybody feels that their children could be worse off than they are. And so it creates this desperation. Um, that's why you have to constantly be doing productive leisure to be getting better so the AIs don't take your job, how, why you have to constantly be shelling your kid around to all these, you know, events and classes that they don't, they probably don't like that much. You probably don't like that much, but you're terrified that if you don't, that the kids who do will, will, will get ahead of you. And it just seems like a, um, it is a point Dana Markovitz makes in his critique of meritocracy, but it's a funny form of social competition where it's not even any fun being at the top. Yeah, I'm reminded of that book uh, came out a few years ago. What is it? All Joy and No Fun, Modern Parenting. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but it was that it was a brilliant title. I think I think you're onto something there. I mean, one of the things, I mean, if we just think generally in terms of the statistical trends, is it's outrageous how much more the top one percent spends than everyone else on these things. So you know, for example, they spend 20 times more than the middle class on domestic services and musical instruments. They spend 33 times more on education than the middle class. And these are kind of the big macro things. But what they are doing with those choices is you're right. They're they're reproducing privilege. We know that education is the key to social mobility. They're buying back time uh, so they can improve themselves and their children. And we also know from other studies that when parents become more educated and more well-off, they don't spend more leisure time. They spend more time with their children. In fact, educated women spend two to three times more time with their kids than those of lower socioeconomic groups. And these are the Ramney scholars in, at Brookings Institution. They found that as you increase money, you spend less time in housekeeping. Great. But you also spend less time in leisure time. And so this is about this devoting your time to essentially cultivating your children. And this is um, the sociologist Annette LaRose term. She calls it concerted cultivation, which is this idea that you your children are in some way a project. Now, I don't think any of us really feel like this in some sort of emotional sense, but there is a sense that you've got to keep on it. <laughs> and what I, I think, and I, I think that this is something interesting being in the thick of it with young children is Competition is not the word I would use. I mean, it's not it's not like big little lies. I mean, I, I can't speak for your experience, but 
It's exactly like Big Little Lies, my experience. Okay. So, <laughs> so you know, I live in Los Angeles and what I find is, you know, you have some of these points where you feel like there's some competitive parenting going on. But what I really see is a lot of comparative parenting. And what I mean by that is we all have these bespoke ways in which we are cultivating our children. You know, we know our kids, we know they like violin or they like piano or they like soccer, or they like lacrosse, they like to read or they like to do math. You know, it's, it, it, you know, even the rise of charter schools that are specialized in the arts or science or math. So we're, we're creating these quite specific experiences for our children in the hopes that we create children who and cultivate children who then go off and do something wonderful with their lives and they have emotional and economic and intellectual security and we've done our job right. But the thing is, is there's no clear path. And so what I, you know, what I find, you know, if I'm having conversations with my friends and one of them, you know, is sending their kids to math camp and the other one, you know, has after school coding and my kids are doing neither is I'm thinking not, I've got to one up this person, but oh my goodness, am I doing the right thing? I mean, my kid, he plays piano and plays soccer, but uh, that's kind of all he's doing. Should I be enrolling him in something else? I mean, I, I, you know, so it's it's not in some ways because I want to be better than them, but I want to make sure I'm keeping up. An argument that I think emerges out of your book is that people are doing a lot of things that in, at the individual level, they all seem reasonable and even virtuous. You're trying to get nice tomatoes that were produced in a nice way where people were well-paid or you're trying to teach your kid violin, which is not a crazy thing to want to do. And that collectively, this is creating a lot of problem um, because others are getting squeezed out because there's an increasingly rarefied set of cultural capital. And it's um, harder and harder even to see visibly what it is. But then people end up in spaces where they don't know it and they suffer for it. So what does this mean? Like if you're if part of your view of the virtuous life is to not be making inequality much worse like, what does it say about how you should live your life or how you should raise your children um, or even how you should think about society? Yeah, that's a really great question. And what's tough is I don't believe that this current moment is a bad one in terms of choices that people are making. Uh, I definitely laud people for saving money for their kids' education over buying the beach house, right? I mean, these are these are good decisions. And even on a much smaller scale, you know, deciding to read to your child and limit screen time. These are these are really these are good choices. Uh, they do make, I think, this group quite oblivious to, and and frankly, because they're so exhausted to in, in their efforts to keep up, quite inured to the problems of society. Now, if I stop going to Pilates and sending my kid to piano lessons, I'm not going to change inequality, right? So this is in some ways is there's it's a it's hard to say that on an individual level or even on a class level that these that if we change that it would do anything it it wouldn't. Um, what I think we need to do is realize as a society what the real roadblocks are for other socioeconomic groups. And so to me, if I could wave my magic wand, it wouldn't be to tell this new class of people to stop doing what they're doing. It would be to make them more aware. But what it actually is, is how do we make public and make more accessible cultural capital? And so in, in you know in a very small way I, you know 
you take your kids to the museum, for example, and it's, you know, if you go in New York, if you go to the MoMA, it's $20 a head. I know they say suggested donation, but, you know, most people, they show up, they pay their $20 and they go in, right? And um, and LACMA is the same. It's it's I think it's it's twenty twenty dollars to go. That's real money to most people. And our our institutions like that shouldn't be so expensive. Um, you know, you can say the New York Times has to you know it has to pay its employees. Uh, what's I don't know what it's we get the subscription, but I don't know if it's you know two dollars a day. Um, you can say oh that's not a lot of money. It, it is a lot of money when it, you know you think about it day in day out. How do we make those kinds of things? free for people who really can't afford them and also accessible. I mean, I'm thinking about your podcast and podcasts like Hidden Brain or um, there's a whole host of really intellectually interesting podcasts on NPR. And you're thinking, how do you get these in front of kids who whose parents aren't already doing that for them? Uh, how do you get them to listen to this stuff? I mean, even there's some fun ones like there's a was it called Science On or something that my son and I listen to on the way to school sometimes? You know, that is free, but the it, there is a cost of the information to to know to listen to it. And we need a more collective way in which these kinds of things are in front of the people who need them the most. This seems to me to be a place where it is very hard to imagine the inequalities being reduced. And and for a lot of reasons. I mean, so one thing that, because I my, my mind tends to drift immediately towards policy solutions, I think it's just very clear that something that we need to do is help people have time, um, you know, have time and stability. So, right, you, you can't make these investments if you don't have time and if you're exhausted all the time and if you have no stability in your schedule. And so all kinds of things like, you know, fairness and fairness and scheduling laws and, and, and other things would be good here and, you know, truly universal health care. And, you know, so we can we can sort of run down the, um, the, the, the general policy agenda. But in terms of that question of, you know, are you just interested in this stuff? Um, does this feel right to you? Does it feel important to you? Does it make sense? I mean, for everything you said, like, I'm sure that in the way I do this podcast, I give off 100 signifiers that really connect to some people and then not to others. Um, and the that's not going to be a random distribution. And so as cultural capital becomes, if it's becoming more and more important, that seems in certain ways quite, I don't exactly want to call it pernicious, but it, at the very least, it is much harder to imagine what your policy solutions are for something like cultural capital versus straight up money, right? I can tell you how to make people richer than they are, um, how to give them more resources, how to give them more stability. But in terms of this kind of ways in which classes set themselves apart through specialized cultural knowledge and ways of relating to each other. And then that just begins to be understood of like what a talented person looks like, a hardworking person looks like. That just seems incredibly hard to surmount. It's very, very sneaky. It definitely, it definitely is. And I actually use the term pernicious in my book. So I think it's a reasonable one. Uh, you know, it it really is about thinking about where people who do acquire cultural capital acquire it from. One thing, and this is, again, I'm not the first person to say this, but our education institutions from the very beginning are sources of this. So if you go to a, you know, it starts as early as preschool, but certainly if you go to a good elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, it changes your life. It introduces you to the things you might want to study in college. It introduces you to quality teachers who are able to identify kids who really have something very special going on. And 
you know, we need those schools everywhere. And I'm again, I sound like, you know, every other liberal on the planet. We need better schools. But that actually is a solution. That is a policy solution. We we also need, I think, the social fabric around this. You know, Raj Chetty's looked at, you know, this the importance of social skills. Uh, I, you know, Jeffrey Canada's work in uh, looking at the children's zone, which is that you create a social fabric around these institutions that makes it easier on parents who can't you know, just show up to the bake sale with brownies and then do after-school reading, right? Because we know that the success of so many schools, public or private, has an awful lot to do with the social capital built around it and these active parents. So how do we actually think about not just the institution, but how to create the the kind of world around it and make it easier? Uh, we also, you know, libraries. I mean, this is, you know, one of Andrew Carnegie's great contributions. I mean, he, he gave knowledge and libraries give knowledge to the public for free. And they're extraordinary places if you can get there. I mean, I I remember a couple of years ago, my son being, my eldest son being so interested in Hamilton, you know, like every other kid listening to the music. The music, um, And so we went to the New York Public Library. We were there for the summer. And we went to the New York Public Library. And we went to the archives and we were able to find Hamilton's papers. And he just thought this was the coolest in the world. And he read about him and he learned. This was all free. I mean, this was going into a library, a little bit of research to kind of figure it all out, talking to someone. We, you know, maybe the mom who has the hourly job can't do that. Um, I'm in an enviable position. I'm a professor. I get my summers to myself. But we can find ways in which schools do that. I mean, these institutions are here. We need to maximize their potential for children. So I think it's a good place to come to a close. Let me ask you what's always our final question, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? So my first, the first book I would recommend is Just Kids by Patti Smith. Uh, my early work was in the arts in New York City, and I, I studied, you know, how these, you know, creative people worked and the places they worked. And I it kind of created this formalized story of, of you know, places like Max's Kansas City being, you know, centers of not just having fun, but economic exchange and innovation. And I wrote that in 2007, but I read Patty Smith's book, which I think came out in, I want to say 2010 or 2012, like sometime around then. And I was so moved by her much more beautiful and obviously individualistic way of telling her story at once about her relationship with Robert Maplethorpe, um, but also the story of New York. So it's a, it's a, it, she's such a beautiful writer. And it, it made me realize how important the individual is in our stories that we tell as social scientists. And the other book that I think is really fantastic, and you don't have to love art or be a sociologist, but if you like social science research, is Howie Becker's book, Art Worlds, which he talks about how artists work and the importance of their creativity in a larger system of galleries and resources and critics. But he has this beautiful line in the beginning, and I remember this in graduate school where he, I'm paraphrasing it, but it was you know, social social science, it's, it's not like biology where you, you find something no one else has ever discovered before, but that social science gets us closer and gives us a deeper understanding of things we already knew. And and I, I thought that was really lovely and, 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 and for me, a real motivation for how I look at the world in my own work. And the final book uh, may seem strange, but it's it's um, Donna Tartt's book, The Goldfinch. And it's, it's my favorite book of all time. And it's a, you know, it's a 
Dickensian epic tale. But one of the things I think when you read this book is that you realize how important languages and sentences and word choice and really something that in a in a tale that is so fantastical the ability to tell a tale of the human condition uh and and a tale that on some level you know every so often the reader says oh i really get what you're saying and i i'm there too elizabeth curd halkett thank you very much thank you for having me thank you to elizabeth curd halkett I'd be very curious what you all thought of that conversation and what it makes you think about the way you spend or the way you signal. Do you think there are, are alternatives? Um, like how? Like what would it look like? Uh, that what we were talking about there at the end of, but what does it mean if you take seriously the ways in which these things increase inequality, the ways in which they retard social mobility? If you take all that seriously, but you still like to read books or listen to podcasts or you want to. Um, raise your kid well. Like, what what do you do? Like, how do you both care about inequality and not become completely a part of its uh, generators? And I think it's the answer's got to be more complex and large scale than you support more redistribution. I mean, that's fine. Uh, a lot of people do that. I certainly agree with that. But it's bigger than that. Um, you can't you can't solve it all that way. Um, I think we've seen that, if nothing else, in recent decades. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. I'd also love to hear who you'd like to see on the show, who you wish was on that has not been on. Please send me all your guest ideas. We check them all out. Uh, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. Thank you to all of you for being here. And if you have a moment, leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or sending the show to someone you think will enjoy it. Uh, I appreciate when you give a little bit back to the show in that way. The Ezra Klein Show, as always, is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.